Welcome to you all. My name is Robert Faulkner. I'm the academic convener of the summer school, and great to see you all back. Um, some of you I've seen this morning. Where are they? Ah, oh, yes, good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I told them to come, but um, they clearly didn't listen to me. Um, I hope you're having a great time here. Summer school is one of the outstanding periods here at the LSE when we all get out and enjoy ourselves, but also do some very interesting work. And I'm hoping very much that you're enjoying your time here with us. This is a very special event because we not only lay on summer school courses, which are very intensive and stimulating, but we also want to drag you out of your areas of specialism and pull you into public debates. For this, we organize every year a public lecture series. And this is the first of the four public lectures that we have laid on. The second one, let me perhaps get the commercial break out of the way straight away, will be on Monday the 18th of July when Professor Connor Gerty from the LSE will speak on the topic, are human rights truly universal? Are they even truly true? A title that, of course, only Connor could come up with. So this will be Monday the 18th of July. And this is just the kind of event that we hope you will all come to, irrespective of whether you're studying international relations or economics, accounting or law. But today's speaker will kick off, and it's a great pleasure for me to be here to call, uh, welcome my colleague, Fabas Scherges, who's a professor in international relations here at the LSE. He's a professor of international relations of the Middle East, to be precise, and he also directs the LSE's Middle East Center. Fabas is actually an alumnus of the LSE, having done his master's here, and he then went off to Oxford to do his doctorate. We'll forgive him that, and are, um, and are particularly pleased that he's found his way back uh, to this uh, center of learning. Um, he has taught at Oxford, then I understand went on to teach at Harvard, Columbia, and was a research scholar at Princeton. So always rewarding to see you have returned after uh, those places that I understand are also noteworthy. Um, and he is, of course, known for his extensive research on Islam, politics, and the Arab world, particularly the international dimensions of the Arab world and other topics. Uh, he has published widely in the area. Two of the most recent books are widely acclaimed. They include Journey of the Jihadist Inside Muslim Militancy 2007, which I think is being republished, or is it, yeah? And The Far Enemy, Why Jihad Went Global, published in 2005. And I know there's at least one more book in the pipeline. There are many other publications which I cannot list today. The time is short, and we want to get on to the talk. Uh, but um, you will find these on the website. Faraz has an extraordinary media presence, commenting on events in the Middle East, on international channels and in print media. And he also frequently travels to the Middle East, so he's a true insider. In fact, we recently thought at the LSE we could save ourselves a little bit of money by giving his office to another colleague and asking Heathrow Airport and the BBC studio to offer him hot desking facilities. Uh, but um, those uh, plans are not yet uh, fully thought through, so I think uh, you can still find them in the IR department. Ruin my reputation. 
It is a great pleasure to welcome fathers, and I am certain that you will enjoy this event. Uh, the topic of the, tit the title of the lecture will be Not a Perfect Storm, a Revolution in the Making in the Arab World, and I look forward to the talk. Please welcome Fawaz Churches. Thank you. Um, I hope it was a compliment. <laughs> uh, welcome to the London School of Economics, and as my colleague Robert said, um, I do hope to see some of you here at the LSE in the next few years, uh, like most of us that who basically uh, made the right decision. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to go straight, because I know time is very precious and uh, we have one hour and a half. Uh, I think the first question probably on your mind is, uh, what's the state of things in the Middle East, in the Arab Middle East? There is war uh, in Libya. Uh, Yemen is imploding from the inside. Uh, there is a civil war uh, in Syria. Uh, a fierce political struggle in Egypt and Tunisia, the first Arab states to basically uh, get rid of their dictators. Has the Arab Spring turned into a hot summer? Where are we today in the Middle East? Most of us probably have the question on our minds. Where are we today? What has happened in the last six or seven months? How do we make sense? How do we really contextualize the events of the last seven months? What I want to do today is to put some questions on the table, some big ideas on the table. Try to give you a glance of what has happened and why things have happened. And then probably during the question and answer session, I would be delighted to answer any specific questions you have on Libya, on Syria, on Yemen, or where are we in Egypt and Tunisia, Bahrain, Oman, um, what's the state of play in Saudi Arabia? We don't hear anything about Saudi Arabia, yet Saudi Arabia is uh, in play. I think the first point I want to make uh, tonight is that this is a revolution in the making, as opposed to the end of the revolution. It we are witnessing, really, a world being born before our eyes. Uh, it is the beginning, not the end, and that's why the confusion, and that's why, basically, the foggy situation in the Middle East. This is really an unfolding, dynamic situation, even in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Yemen, in Libya, in Oman, in Bahrain. That is, it's very difficult to make, uh, basically, definite conclusions about uh, where are we uh, uh, in the, in the Middle East uh, today. Uh, that is, it is a historical and a revolutionary movement because uh, the question on the table, the people in the region do not really want to tinker with the existing system. They want structural change, substantive uh, change. Um, and even though it's a revolution in the making, even though this is really one of the most important historical moments in the modern uh, Middle East, it's very difficult to talk about the morning after. That is, what kind of system will emerge out of the womb of turmoil in the Middle East? Uh, how democratic the system will be? How peaceful? How inclusive? How authoritarian? These are questions extremely difficult to answer at this particular stage because the dust has not settled on the battlefields uh, in the Middle East even in Egypt and Tunisia, the first two states 
to basically get rid of their uh, dictators. All we can talk about today as students of international relations, of government, of politics, of history is the dominant features of the evolving, unfolding system before our eyes. The weight of social forces in the region. For example, who are the dominant players, the dominant social groups in the region? Are the Islamists, the Muslim Brotherhood, the dominant player in Egypt and Tunisia? What are the, basically the relative, uh, 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 what's the relative significance of the secular, progressive uh, nationalist forces in relation to the Islamist uh, forces? So these are the questions we can talk about, but we cannot really talk about basically the character of the system, the nature of the system that will likely emerge out of the rubble of authoritarianism in the region. But again, I want to come back to the point I want to hammer tonight. This is a historical revolutionary movement, truly one of the most important historical moments probably in the 21st century. Uh, in fact, it is as important as the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. It is really the beginning of the crumbling of the oppressive authoritarian wall that has been in place in the Arab world for the last 60 or 70 years. The beginning, the beginning of the crumbling of the oppressive autocratic world in the Arab world, wall, in the Arab world that has been put in place in the last 60 or 70 or 80 years. Let me go further and say, and probably this will surprise you, I would say what has happened in the Arab world is much more significant in historical terms will likely, most of us, you, you generation in 50, 60 years, you will look at this particular moment. It's very difficult, as you all know, to really appreciate what's happening in the region now. It's gonna take us 20, 30 years to really appreciate the complexity and the historical significance of this particular moment. But I think when we look back at this particular moment in 50 or 60 years, we realize that this moment in that part called the Middle East, one of the most critical theaters in the world, historically, civilizationally, economically, remember. I mean, this is a theater that basically fuels the world economy. The world economy will come to a uh, standstill if it was not for the gas and oil produced in that part of the world. This is a part of the world that has witnessed the birth of world civilization, as you and I, all of us, understand it. Uh, uh, the great, the three great religions were born in that part of the world. Uh, this is a, a, a part of the world where you have Egypt, uh, one of the greatest uh, states in the world, oldest nation states in the world, 7,000 years, years old. Egyptians called Egypt Umidunya, the mother of the world. So historically, civilizationally, and economically, the Middle East is a critical, pivotal theater in world politics in the international system. And the reason why I'm saying that this really is a significant point, because for the last 600 years, for the last 600 years, the so-called the Arab people of the Middle East, the 320 million people, have really never had a moment of self-determination. The Arab people, about 320 million people, for the last 600 years, they have never had a moment of self-determination. You might wonder and say, what are you talking about? For 500 years, the Arab world, what we call the Arab world, the 22 Arab states, were basically under the rule of the Ottoman Empire. I'm sure most of you know the Ottoman Empire was one of the greatest old empires in world history. It basically ruled for almost 500 years, and the Arab people, the Arab provinces, were part, were governed directly from Ankara and Istanbul uh, uh, for almost 500 years. 
when the Ottoman Empire collapsed in 1918, after the end of World War I, basically two basic narratives uh, dominated the debate. You had the American nar narrative, basically President, uh, the American President Wilson, who said, well, look, colonized people must have, I mean, the right and the freedom to determine their own affairs. You remember all the, the 14 points by President Wilson. So he said, the Arab people and the colonized people must have basically the right to determine their own affairs. Another rival perspective that basically uh, was argued by Britain and France said, well, the colonized people were not equipped to govern their own affairs. They wanted to be helped. Uh, what really, in, in blunt terms, they basically said, we, Britain and France, are the only powers equipped to help the colonized people uh, uh, reach a particular point. Uh, in order to govern themselves. So you had two opposing points in 1918 between the American point of view and the European point of view. And we know what happened between 1918 and 1928. That is, the European perspective won the debate, and the so-called the modern Middle East, most of the modern Middle East, basically came under the direct control of Britain and France and Italy between 1918 and the end of World War II, 19, the, the, the end, uh, mid-1940s and then up till the mid-1950s. So, 1918, 1950, colonialism became the dominant order uh, in the modern Middle East, well, in many parts of the world. We're talking about the Arab world and the modern Middle East. So, again, the Arab people did not really have a chance to determine their own affairs. Well, what happened after the end of the colonial moment in the Middle East? What happened was that the man on the horseback the military officers basically dominated the political scene in almost every Arab country. You might say, what happened? Why did the military basically dominate the political landscape in almost every single country? For the simple reason, as you all well know, the colonial powers invested most of their assets in what? In the security services. Britain and France wanted to be able to govern uh, 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 Middle Eastern societies and other societies by not sending their own troops, which were very limited, they relied on the security forces, indigenous security forces, and thus the colonial powers invested more that, most of their assets in the only institution that would serve their interests, that was the military institution, that was the man on the horseback. So between 1950 and the end of the 1960s, the man on the horseback dominated the political landscape in almost every single Middle Eastern country, uh, including the Arab world. And you know what the military officers did or have done uh, in the uh, Arab world between the beginning of the 1950s and the uh, present. And that's what I want to talk about, is that the causes of this particular crisis. Uh, uh, that is, why now? Uh, 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 what was the spark? What was the trigger? Uh, of course, it's very difficult to predict uh, when uh, revolutions take place. This is a very, very risky, very difficult and challenging uh, exercise. In fact, I would argue the particular crisis, the crisis in that part of the world has been simmering for the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, um, and of course, uh, the question uh, is not why the revolutions have taken place in the Arab and Muslim world today. The question is why they have taken so long to take place in the first place given the context, given the conditions uh, that uh, exist in that part of the world. Of course, every country is different uh, in the Middle East. 
Egypt is not Tunisia, Tunisia is not Libya, Libya is not Yemen, Yemen is not Syria, I don't need to tell you that, you know that. That is, you, we have to focus on specificity, we have to focus on context. Context uh, are different in almost every single country. But I would argue there are four similar features. There are four similar features that help us understand the similarities, the conditions that basically brought about this uh, great revolutionary moment in world uh, history. The first point, the first condition, the first feature I would like to stress is that in almost every single country in that part of the world, you have a closed, a closed oppressive military order that has failed to integrate the rising social forces um, into the political and social space. Whether Tunisia or Algeria or Libya or Syria or Yemen, you have military officers who came to power either in the 1950s or 1960s and dominated the political space and controlled political and social and economic life and the systems have failed to renew themselves over the last 30 or 40 years. What I am talking about here? I'm talking about the fact, for example, we have examples in Singapore and other places, you have authoritarian system, authoritarian systems that have been able to renew themselves over time and space to provide goods and services to their population, to integrate young uh, men and women into the political and social uh, uh, process. In the Arab Middle East, the closed autocratic political system has failed to deliver the goods, the social and economic goods, and has failed to integrate the millions of young men and women who basically are part and parcel of the existing social system. And when I say integrate young men and women, I don't know if you know this, but almost 70%, 70% of the population in the so-called Arab Middle East are under the ages 30 years old. 70%. So out of the 320 million Arabs who live today, you have 70% who are under the ages of 30 years old. So imagine, imagine you have this, the largest constituency. It's been marginalized, ghettoized, excluded from social and political life. So the first thing is oppressive, closed political system that has not renewed itself. It has not allowed this huge, great constituency. It has not really been able to, uh, you might say, uh, bring about a kind of a, uh, or build a bridge to the largest social constituency uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the, uh, societies. The second feature is that it's not only the systems that exist, and I'm generalizing here, those are similar social and political features that exist in every single country. Not only the system was oppressive, politically oppressive, and has not been able to renew itself, it basically, if you look at the region, at the, at the this particular modern Middle East, it is one of the poorest regions in the world. It is the social and economic conditions are truly dismal. You might be shocked here, because think about it. When all of us think about the, the Arab world, what do you think of? What comes to mind when you think about the Arab world? You think about what? You think about the oil, the gas, the billions of dollars, well, actually the trillions. I mean, all the decadence that exists go to London, to Knightsbridge, and you see the, uh, uh, I mean, the extent of the wealth. But you will be shocked if I tell you that out of the 320 million Arabs that basically who live today, you have on average between 43% and 
and 49% live either in poverty or below the poverty line. 40, between 42 and 49%, almost 150 million Arabs live either in poverty or below the poverty line. Egypt. Egypt is a country of 84 million people. 43.9% of Egyptians live either in poverty or below the poverty line. Millions of Egyptians wait for six hours every day to get what? Six subsidized loaves of bread every day. Cairo, one of the greatest cities in world history, was built for almost one, two million people. You have 22 million people who live in Cairo today. Out of the two, 22 million people, you have 11 million people who live in the urban poverty belts. I don't know if you know what urban poverty belts. Think of hell, but it's worse than hell on earth. You have to truly navigate mountains of trash. There is no life. I mean, literally hell on earth. Uh, nothing works in Egypt. So not only you have President Mubarak, former President Mubarak, who uh, was in power for almost 31 years. It's a very oppressive, very excluded political system. Did not basically succeed in integrating uh, uh, a new blood into the social and political process. But the Mubarak regime failed to what? To provide bread and butter for uh, uh, his people, for the 84 uh, million people. The same thing applies in Algeria, in Lebanon. Lebanon is one of the most open societies in the Middle East. Out of the 4.9 million Lebanese, 40% of the Lebanese people live either in poverty or below the poverty line. Yemen. Yemen is the poorest Arab country in the Gulf. Yemen now, as you all know, there is a fierce struggle taking place in Yemen. 60% of the 23 million Yemen, uh, Yemenis live either in poverty or below the poverty line. The same thing in Sudan, almost 65%. Think of the, and what I'm talking about here, I'm talking about truly oppressive political uh, conditions and oppressive social and economic uh, uh, conditions uh, as well. Not only the third feature that I want to talk about is the state itself. So you might say, what has happened? The military, the man on the horseback who came, the so-called post-colonial state, after the end of colonialism, basically most states became independent. And the military, the military institution became the dominant institution in almost every country because as I insinuated earlier, the only dominant effective institution in most colonized state was the military because the colonial powers invested most of their assets in the security forces because they wanted to I mean maintain control and security and the military was basically the most you might say uh, 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 critical institution for the colonial powers the state itself the military the man on the horseback President Mubarak who was also a military man the Algerian presidents the Libyan Muammar Gaddafi President Assad of Syria they systematically dismantled the state itself. They systematically dismantled the state itself. What do I mean by that? I mean, think with me, and I know most of you have studied political theory and history and politics. When we think of the state, we think of what? The Viberian state. What, what did Weber tell us about the state? The state, the first function, the most important function of the state is to provide what? Provide security for its population to have a monopoly on the use of force. The major function of the state is to do what? We all are equal before, I mean, uh, the law. If you and I, we argue, 
we, we, we go, we have courts, we have institutions. That is, whether it's the military institution or the judicial system itself. In the last 50 years, there has been a systemic dismantling of the state itself. There are no states. There are no states in the modern Middle East. You might be shocked too. There are, what do I mean by there are no state in an institutional sense? There are family-based states. The state in the Middle East, the Viberian state, that was basically the, 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 the overall thin institutional elements of the state that were put, put in place by the colonial powers between 1918 and 1950 were systematically dismantled by the man on the horseback. How? They created what I call family-based states. So you have in Egypt, for the last 31, 32 years, you have the Mubarak family-based state. So you have Mubarak, who was in power forever almost, and he was grooming his son to do what? To succeed him, Gamal Mubarak. And then I'm sure Gamal would have groomed his own son to succeed him as well. In Libya, you have Muammar al-Qadhafi, who has been in power for 42 years. And in Libya, you don't have a state. You have the Qadhafi family-based estates. So he was grooming his son, Saif al-Islam. And even today, as the people talk about a way out of the crisis, they're talking about Saif al-Islam being replacing his father. So in Libya, you have a family-based state. In Syria, again, you're talking about these are fascinating. I know probably you don't know much about the history. So you have Syria, a, a, a state that prides itself on being a radical revolutionary state. So in Syria, there is no state anymore. You have a family-based state that is the Assad state. So President uh, Hafiz al-Assad, the, uh, the, the father of the current president, Bashar al-Assad, he came to power in 1970, he died in the late 1990s, and he basically transferred the family-based state to Bashar. Bashar al-Assad now is the president of Syria. In Yemen, well, you don't have any institutions. You have the president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh. His name is Ali Abdullah Saleh. He has been in power for 32 years, and he has been grooming his son Ahmed, God bless him and his son, to basically own the, what exists, the spoils of what we used to call the Viberian states. If I'm really, I'm too generous by calling them, by, by calling the states, well, what, what we used to call the state family-based state, they're really more like mafia types, families. To be blunt with you, I mean, that's what we're really talking about. It's really mafia types. Uh, I'm, I'm not even talking about the Gulf now, I'm, I'm talking about the Arab world. The Gulf is a different, the Gulf does not pride itself on being radical revolutionary states. They are basically, I mean, uh, you have monarchies. Monarchies, I mean, they, they, they subscribe to um, everlasting uh, happy ever. Uh, that is, there is no daylight between the family and the resources uh, of the state uh, itself. Uh, so what, what I'm trying to say is that really we did not underestimate, we did not underestimate the structural crisis that has been simmering in the Middle East for the last 40 or 50 years. In fact, in my inaugural lecture, because I, I came to LSE uh, two years ago, my, it was titled, A Broken Middle East. That is really whether Egypt or Yemen, it's a broken region because there are no states, there are no institutions, uh, no functioning institutions. The only institution that really function are the security state that control and maintain the stability of the family itself. 
And the family, when I talk about the family, I'm talking about, uh, and this brings me to the last point, the, the major features of the state, there are no economies in the modern Middle East. So not only there are no state. I mean, think about when we say economists. We say liberal capitalism, American type, or we say socialism, or democratic socialism. In the Middle East, there is neither liberal capitalism nor state socialism. What you have is crony capitalism. And what do I mean by crony capitalism? Crony capitalism is a social contract between the family-based state and a parasite small business community that feeds on the spoils of the state itself. So in the sense, you have a very tiny, very tiny uh, two-pronged elite. You have the security, family-based elite, and you have a small, very tiny business elite that basically, and the money circulates between the security and the business elite. We call them crony capitalism. So let me give you an example. If you, if you were a very talented, very brilliant Egyptian, and you come to the LSC, you have a degree, an MBA, you want to go back to Egypt and open your own business. How, where do you get the money? We know in America and Britain, what do you do? You go to the banks. There is no money circulating outside of this particular really small circle. All the money is there. And money, there is no trickle-down effect into society itself. Let me give you an, just an example uh, what I mean. In the last eight years, in the last eight years, the annual growth rate in Egypt has been between 7 and 10%, one of the highest in the world for the last 10 years. Yet, there was no trickle effects into society itself. In fact, poverty, there is de-development as opposed to development. That is, more and more people became poorer in Egypt as a result of this magnificent growth rate. Why? Because of this alliance, this unholy alliance between the family-based estate and the small business security tiny elite. It's all, let me simplify a great deal. We estimate you have between 100 and 400 billion dollars, and this is estimates based on many numbers that have been siphoned off in the last 30 years. In Egypt alone, one of the poorest countries in the Arab world, they have been siphoned off between the Mubarak family-based estate and the small tiny uh, business elite. And Again, to give you an idea, so on the one hand, on the one hand, you have decadent wealth, you have people who are, I mean, from nobodies, but because they're close to the family who have made billions, and you have abject poverty. That is, abject poverty, when you go to the urban poverty belts in Egypt, in Cairo, you realize you have millions of people who are basically have no life, literally living in hellish conditions. So, in fact, the question, the point of what I'm trying to say is that uh, uh, we're not surprised that revolutions have taken place. We are surprised that revolutions had not taken place earlier, given the social and economic uh, conditions. What we underestimated, what we really underestimated, most of us, basically the role of agency. The role of agency. What do I mean by agency? I mean the, the, the will, uh, uh, the, the political will of individuals who basically challenge the security apparatus, challenge the might of the security apparatus, whether in Egypt, whether in Tunisia, in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, other places. I don't need to explain to you what, when I say a family-based state. A family-based state, it's not a happy, open family, tolerant family that, you know, we're all family. That is, it uses all means, all means, in order to what? to consolidate, to maintain its vested interest. 
that is the Mubarak regime, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands over the last 30 years, basically suffered in the, some of the most horrible conditions in Egyptian prisons. In fact, in the last few years, so desperate was the, and I'm using Egypt, the reason why I'm focusing a great deal on Egypt, because Egypt is the most populous Arab state. Egypt is the capital of the cultural production in the region. Egypt is the vanguard. That is, what happens in Egypt basically happens, we, we, we teach our students uh, in, in Middle Eastern politics, if Egypt goes, the rest of the region goes as well. Because of its cultural weight, its civilizational weight, its human weight, um, uh, and that's why. So in the last few years, basically the regime, the Mubarak regime, used, I mean, rape. Rape became, I mean, torture has always, uh, always used torture, but rape became a major tactic against males in particular, because you know what rape is, I don't need to tell you, but against males in Egyptian order to silence any kind of opposition in the country uh, itself. So we did underestimate the agency because most of us could not really believe that basically you have young men and women who would rise up, who would challenge the security might, the security, the brutality of the Qaddafi family-based state, of the Assad-based uh, family estate, of the Mubarak family-based estate. And this brings me to the second point I want to make tonight. First point I said, we are witnessing the birth of a new world. Really, the world is unfolding be before our eyes, even though we don't know the major, we don't know what kind of world will emerge out of this trouble. The second point, and I really would like you to take home, is that a psychological rapture has taken place in the Middle East. A psychological rapture has taken place in the Middle East, and that's why I said earlier, this is a moment of self-determination. That is, we're not just talking about the removal of the barrier of fear, the barrier of fear, a fear that has kept the bloody uh, oppressive regimes in place. We are seeing now political activism. We are seeing empowerment. We are seeing now the empowerment of the people I've just returned. My, my colleague uh, Robert was saying, I travel, I do really travel a great deal. I, I, I went to Syria. Uh, last week I went to Syria and Yemen. I crossed by land, of course, I didn't fly. I crossed and I, didn't, I did not use my American passport. Um, um, I crossed as a local. And it, it really, to me, it, it was fascinating, truly, to see what has happened in Syria. I mean, I don't need to tell you about how oppressive the Syrian apparatus is. Now, even in the heart of Damascus, people on the streets in cafe talking politics. I mean, in Syria, no taxi driver would have ever answered a question about political conditions in Syria seven months ago. Uh, I mean, that what I'm trying to say when I say a psychological rapture has taken place in the Middle East, I'm talking about there is no return to the old order. The old order is dead for good. It might take two years. And remember here, we're not talking about two, three years. When I say revolutions, you know what I mean by a revolution in the making. We're talking about 10, 20, 30, 40 years. That Middle Eastern societies, I hope you had, I mean, I, I, I don't need to spell out what I'm, I'm trying to say. Given the dismal conditions, given the oppressive con conditions in the region, given the absence of institutions, given the fact that the state has been dismantled systematically in the last 40 years, you can imagine the challenges and the difficulties that lie ahead. You can imagine the great challenges that Egyptians give, the social conditions, the economic conditions, and the political conditions. So, but what I'm trying to say, even though the challenges are great, 
the psychological rupture basically will tell us that the Middle East, the old Middle East, will never, will never uh, return because now you have people who are empowered. People feel really emboldened, empowered. They would like to determine their own affairs. They would like to own their own future. They would like to determine uh, their own uh, societies. Uh, and now I want to say, talk, uh, just say a few words about the challenges and because I, I don't want to give you the impression somehow that uh, uh, things in the Middle East, uh, even though it's a great moment, even though it's a, a significant moment, there are some major risks uh, in the region. Uh, the, first, the first major challenge that will face uh, the new emerging post-authoritarian state is the lack of institutions. Where do you start? How do you begin the process of institution building? Again, I don't need to tell you any political theorist will tell you that the lifespan of democracy, democracy, one of our directors, we were talking about, our, uh, Ralph Darendorf. Uh, Darendorf was one of the greatest political theorists, and he estimates that on average you have between 80 and 100 years for a democracy to become to really be nourished and consolidated. 100 years, between 80 and 100 years. So when I say the Middle East, is an institutional wasteland. Where do you start? How do you start? How long will it take? And what will happen in the meantime where you are trying to uh, put the building blocks of institutions uh, itself? Not only you don't have institution, you have a great turmoil. I mean, I said earlier, I said probably some of you are not you know, following the news uh, in Egypt and Tunisia, the two most successful uh, revolutions. I mean, you have turmoil all over Egypt now and Tunisia. I, I went to Egypt. You have labor strikes, teacher strikes, police strikes. I mean, literally the entire country is engulfed in social turmoil. Uh, you have, uh, I mean, people can't afford one of the, one of the major, I, I talked about, uh, you know, the, the sparks, the triggers. One of the major triggers for the, the current crisis was really increase in food prices. Uh, worldwide. I mean, this is the food prices in particular because of the drought, because of the, of the, the lack of, of wheat. And Egypt is one of the most uh, I mean, imports of all states in the world. Egypt imports the, the greatest, uh, I mean, uh, uh, tons of wheats worldwide. And the wheat prices in the last five or six years really have shot up a great deal, in particular meat as well. So you have people, when I say people wait for six hours to get six loaves of bread, and I don't need to tell you what bread is. I mean, when I say the basic breads in Egypt, probably you have an idea what I, I mean, basics, literally, ba because people can't afford to buy the basics, the bread and butter. And that's why some of us call the revolutions the bread and butter. Uh, so uh, what do you do? You have no institutions. You have great turmoil. You have people cannot really afford the basics. You have almost uh, 40 million Egyptians who live either in poverty or below uh, the poverty line. So it's the combination of economic and social conditions, dismal conditions, the lack of institutions. And if you were to have elections tomorrow in Egypt, who is the most organized political party in Egypt today, or in Tunisia, or even in, in, in Libya, uh, or even in Jordan? Uh, the most organized political party will be probably the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood, and for some of you, uh, is a, a religiously based organization that basically would like to establish establish a state based on some Quranic principles, some of the Islamic, some of the uh, Sharia, what we call Islamic law. Um, 
please don't misunderstand me. Uh, this is, I mean, we can talk about uh, political Islam and what the Sharia is, the Islamic law, what Quranic principle, that's not the question. But what I'm trying to say is that you'll have, you have a fierce political struggle taking place now in Egypt between the most well-organized political elements, that is the religiously based elements, and the nationalist and human rights activists and the progressive and the leftists who believe that the state must be based on constitutional principles, on liberal values. So again, if elections were to take place in September, as they are supposed to do, you're going to have a major, major political struggle between the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamist forces on the one hand, and the progressive, nationalist, secular elements. And this probably will most likely plunge Egypt and Tunisia and other, and other countries into another major political uh, round of conflict. Remember Algeria in 1992? In Algeria, there were elections in Algeria in 1992. And a version of the Muslim Brotherhood won the elections in 1992. And what did the military do in Algeria? It said, no way. We will never allow the Muslim Brotherhood to control the state. So in Algeria, from 1992 to the present, you had a devastating civil war. Almost 200,000 Algerians have been killed uh, as a result of this particular war. So the Algerian model is real. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that how do, you, how do you bring about reconciliation, political reconciliation? How do you bring about convergence of interest between divergent social and political forces? Uh, uh, there are real challenges, political challenges uh, that exist. The countries are deeply fragmented along ideological, political, and economic uh, lines. How do you deal with economic, pressing economic needs? Where, how do you start? Do you follow the Washington consensus? Do you open up the economic systems? Do you borrow from the World Bank? Or do you focus on distribution? You want to narrow the divide, the economic divide in societies. So again, there's a great struggle taking place in societies. People are saying, most of the young men and women, we need to live. We need resources. We need jobs. We need to be able to have an apartment. And, and some of the elite are saying, well, look, we can't do all that. We don't have the resources. We need to reform our societies and our economies. Again, what I'm trying to say, the debate is unfolding. And this particular debate will likely plunge the new post-authoritarian state in, into another round of conflict. Another major challenge is the army. The armies, or the army, remains the most powerful institutions in almost every single Middle Eastern society. And I'm not just talking about the Arab world. Iran, really the same conditions apply to Iran. And I would be delighted to answer any questions about Iran. The same way in Turkey. The army was and is the most powerful institution in Turkey, one of the first states to democratize after the end of World uh, War II. So will the army relinquish power to a political entity either controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood or in an alliance with the Muslim Brotherhood? It's a big question mark, because surely the army has been in power since the end of the colonial moment, and I doubted very much whether the army the generals basically will say here on a silver platter to a new political leadership that emerge out of the ranks of the people. And the most, the finally, the most important point is what I call popularism. You have now, not only you have political activism, I don't want to give you a rosy idea that somehow it's all magnificent. You have popularism now 
Um, and I don't need to tell you about the history of popularism. You have extremism. I can imagine a scenario in Egypt, a one extremist element that basically uh, you know, uh, align itself with the army and say, in the name of stability, in the name of security, we're going to create more centralized state in order to address the grievances of the people. So again, there are major, major risks involved in Middle Eastern societies, even though it's a great historical moment, even though a psychological rupture has taken place, even though the old order is dead. How do the emerging post-autocratic societies address the challenges? These are very difficult, difficult uh, uh, questions uh, to address. And what I'm saying, the risks are real. That even though it's a great moment, it's a great moment pregnant with possibilities and pregnant with risks as well. How much time do I have, Robert? Before I conclude, plenty of time. Before I, con I conclude, the reason why, even though I have given you, a, I, mean, I, I simplified a great deal, I hope you know that. I, I really, uh, there is so much to, to discuss in terms of substance. I think the reason why myself, and I could be wrong, and please don't buy what I'm, gonna, I'm going to say, I am, I am extremely hopeful. I'm extremely hopeful that this particular moment will ultimately produce, ultimately, in the next two decades, more pluralistic, more liberal societies, as opposed to closed autocratic systems. Why? I want to mention several points that really I would like you to take. The first point, the first time in the modern history of the Middle East, these are indigenous local movements, indigenous local movements from the bottom up as opposed to top down, really broadly based social movements. That is, and what they focus on, questions of bread and butter, uh, open society, free elections, separation of powers, and peaceful transfer of authority. These are, if I translate all of that, what? Universal values. That is, the hopes and the aspirations of millions of young men are really aspirations like all of you. I mean, in terms of quality of life, in terms of decent uh, life, in terms of open society, in terms of separations of power. In this particular sense, what we have learned in the last seven months is that the largest constituency in that part of the world is not, was not the Islamist, that Al-Qaeda really is not only insignificant, but the fundamental aspirations of the millions of people in that part of the world are really aspirations of what I call universal values, liberal societies. That gives me a great deal of hope. The second point I want to stress is that not only they are focused on universal uh, values, we have not seen American flags being burned either in Cairo, Tunisia, or Libya, or Syria. Uh, we have not seen people talking about Western imperialism. Even Israel was not, is not uh, an issue uh, in the great revolutions that have taken place. Again, this tells me, gives me a great deal of hope that far from being, remember, after 9-11, the great debate, uh, why they hate us so much, the big debate in America was, or somehow, does Al-Qaeda speak for Muslims and the Arabs? Well, not all the Al-Qaeda does not speak for Islam and Muslims, but even Arabs and Muslims are really mainly interested in their own affairs. They're not really interested in either burning American flags or imperialism. They want to have a better way of life. They want to have a decent society. They want to be proud citizens of their own societies. And this tells us that we need to revisit all of you, all of us. We need to revisit the bloody stereotypes that we have been fed by so-called commentators and third-rate uh, analysts who knew the Middle East more than Middle Easterns themselves. 
That is, in fact, um, I would say one of the greatest losers, or two of the greatest losers of what happened, not only Osama bin Laden al-Qaeda, because what happened, what has happened in the Arab world represents a fatal blow to al-Qaeda's ideology. You know what al-Qaeda ideology. Al-Qaeda ideology, only violence and terrorism brings about political change. What millions of Arabs have said in the last few months, political transformation, political activism, peaceful protests are the most effective means to bring about transformation. And also what the Arab revolutions have told us is that the terrorism narrative that's based on the idea that America faces a great hordes of, 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 of Arabs and Muslims who are going to come to America and destroy the American way or the Sharia is, is, is nonsense. It does not exist. In fact, uh, Islamists, Islamists, religiously based activists are a key element in the equation, but they're one, one element in a social mosaic in the region. And this is a point I really, this is all of us, we have to revisit that particular paradigm is that, in fact, not only there is public opinion in that part of the world, because we, 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 when we talk about the Arab world, we used to talk about the Arab street. There is public opinion. In fact, the largest third silent alternative, silent majority in that part of the world are not the Islamists, they're not the dictators, but rather young men and women who subscribe to what we said, the universal values. And finally, the clerics, and there is no ayatollah. There are no clerics leading, spearheading the revolutions in the region, like in Iran in the 1970s. The embattled middle class, the embattled middle class, basically have uh, 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 led this particular revolution. Finally, I want to conclude by saying what, what can the West do? Uh, and I, when I say the West, I'm talking about the United States and the Western powers in particular. Again, I don't need to tell you, and, and you know as well as I do, that the Western powers, particularly the United States, basically sustain and maintain the close autocratic political order that existed in the last 50 years. That is, Mubarak, to the last minute, uh, uh, basically the United States of America and the Western powers basically hoped that Mubarak would remain with us, would be in control in Egypt. Uh, Mubarak and the family. Uh, um, even even uh, the bloody dictator, Qadhafi, was brought about from the wilderness in the last uh, six or seven years, uh, and, and, and he was brought into the, uh, 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 the community, the international community. And I don't need to tell you why the United States and the Western powers uh, invested most of their assets in dictators, because for two simple reasons. That part of the world is truly one of the most strategic important strategic theaters in the world. Uh, what I'm saying is that more than 60% of the oil and the gas reserves exist in that part of the world. We're all addicted to oil, all of us. Everything we do is oil, from chairs, everything you dress, it's all we're literally addicted. And the United States and the Western powers, they want the dictators who deliver the goods, who deliver cheap, inexpensive oil that basically uh, drive the engine of the world economy. In addition to oil, of course, you had the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the Arab-Israeli conflict, that is, whether it was Mubarak or whether other uh, Arab dictators, they promised to deliver on security in the region. They promised to maintain a state of, of, of well, no war and no peace uh, with Israel. Uh, instead of seeing, I mean, in, in, in the idea, the West seeing that dictators not only brought ruin to their own societies, but in fact, you cannot really understand the entire, I mean, terror, uh, uh, terrorism narrative, except by understanding that uh, terrorism in that part of the world was nourished 
on the conditions that I mentioned uh, in the last uh, uh, in the last half an hour or so. Uh, to summarize and, and conclude, uh, what what can uh, the Western powers do? Take risks on people's aspirations. That is, democracy involves risks. We must take risks on the aspirations of the millions of people who have risen up in the last seven months, even though there are risks, but we must take risks on their aspirations. We must support the transition to pluralistic and democratic societies, not just by rhetoric. That is, if, if, if my reading correct, if the conditions are dismal, if the region is an institutional wa uh, wasteland, that is, the Western powers, including the United States, are called upon to invest really major structurally in the institutional building in the region. And it's not just about one or two billion dollars. Um, I mean, we can talk during the question and answer uh, session, you're talking about really mini Marshall plans. The region needs mini Marshall plans in order to help the regions transcend and escape the, the, the hor horrific conditions that exist uh, um, in that part of the world. And in particular, here you are in Europe, the stakes for Europe really are much higher than the stakes for America itself for a variety of reasons. Not only because of the geographic contigu continu contiguity between Europe and, but because of, for a variety of reasons, historical question of immigration, the question of resources. So in, in this particular sense, when I say the Western powers, I'm not just talking about the United States and Europe, I'm talking about the European powers and the United States uh, 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 as well. Let me say finally, I started my talk by saying that a new world is being born before our eyes. Let's hope, and I, 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 let's hope that the children, the creatures of this particular wo world will be born in a sense in a healthy uh, manner. They will be natural, healthy creatures. And I do hope when I say the Western powers uh, play a major role in helping the children of the new world to be healthy and to be natural and to have really dreams, to have their aspirations. Uh, come true, and not to have what I call the, 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 the vision and the nightmare, rather, of what Al-Qaeda has promised uh, Muslims and Arabs for the last 10 years. That is, the West can do truly uh, a great deal. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. Carlos, thank you so much. This was a, a true tour de force. Can you all hear me? Yeah. We have now a good half an hour for Q&As. Um, I'm going to take questions in blocks so that we can get through as many as possible. Could you please uh, keep them brief, short, questions rather than statements, preferably, so that uh, they can be answered? And could I ask you for a show of hands? There will be microphones going through the rows, so I need to see who would like to start us off, and then I'll ask the microphones to be started. Okay. I can see plenty of hands, so we've got to be uh, very focused. We'll start at the back here, the lady in the black shirt. Yes? The microphone is coming. So where do you see the Middle East going from here? Could, could you repeat that and hold it closer, please? Where does the Middle East go from here? Okay, where does the Middle East intend to go from here? Second question in front here. Um, I do have two questions. The first one is similar to the one already asked. Where do you see Arabs going from there? Is, does, is democracy really an option 
for the Arab word. And the second question is, what do you mean by not a perfect storm? Okay, and the lady behind. Um, just want to ask, uh, do you see similar kind of revolutions in Iran, maybe Iraq and Afghanistan, which are already struggling with a different kind of an unrest? Uh, so do you see that replicating in that part of the world as well? Okay. Should we take those three in Absolutely. block? Uh, Thank let you. Let me start with the question of Iran. Thank you for the question. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that really uh, Iran basically suffers from similar conditions to that of uh, its um, Arab neighbors. Um, the existing Mullah regime really has lost a great deal of legitimacy and authority in the last six or seven years. I mean, Iran now is governed by a truly a dictatorship. In particular, as I don't know if you remember, during the uh, 2010 uh, presidential elections, you had millions of Iranians who went on the streets and challenged the, uh, what they perceived to be that the election was stolen. In fact, few people, probably most of you, don't realize that uh, millions of Arabs have taken lessons out of the really uh, first uprising in Iran itself in 2010. Um, and in fact, I would argue that millions of Iranians have also taken lessons of the Arab revolutions. After Mubarak was uh, toppled uh, in uh, uh, February, uh, uh, tens of thousands of Iranians went um, um, on the streets and challenged the uh, existing regime itself. Um, I mean, again, I don't need to tell you about Iran. Uh, Iran is supposed to be, should be one of the wealthiest states probably in the Middle East because it is one of the oldest nation state. It has one of the most sophisticated civil society. Um, it used to have one of the most developed economies. In fact, Iran could have been the Brazil of, of the Middle East today um, uh, if, if the same economic conditions uh, persisted. Uh, Iran now is as poor as Egypt. Uh, if you go to Tehran, I went to Tehran. I was shocked a few months ago. Tehran really, uh, I mean, you see on people's faces waiting for two hours to fill their, their cars with gas. Um, I mean, a, 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 a truly a, 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 a great deal of, of, of harm the Mullah's regime uh, has done uh, to uh, Iran. Of course, you have the revolutionary guards who will use, I mean, blood and, and, and iron in order to stay in power, and they have done so. Um, so in the case of Iran, I think it's going to take much longer than it has taken the Egyptians and the Tunisians in order to really bring about change. But make no doubt about it, the existing Iranian regime suffers from a grave crisis of legitimacy and authority. Uh, what kind of spark, what kind of trigger, this is a question, of course, and because we don't know. Uh, but the conditions are as ripe in Iran for a social revolution as they are in the rest of the Arab world. Uh, Afghanistan, I don't need to tell you, this is a broken country, truly a broken It's an exhausted country. Afghanistan has been engulfed in turmoil since the, uh, I mean, 1970s. Um, the same uh, thing about Algeria. Societies, exhausted societies, find it extremely difficult to rise up. Revolutions don't take place in societies that have basically suffered from, I mean, uh, turmoil, in particular uh, military turmoil for many years. So I doubted very much whether Iraq and Afghanistan will descend into a similar uh, situation. Uh, to that of Egypt and Tunisia, given the fact that these are exhausted societies, that the people really don't have the energy and the assets to rise up against uh, conditions in their own uh, countries. Why it's not a perfect storm? For the simple reason. Uh, you had a perfect storm in Egypt, a perfect 
storm in Tunisia. Now you have almost civil war in Libya. You have civil war in Yemen. You have civil war, almost low-intensity conflict in Syria itself. Uh, so even though the five major features I mentioned basically apply to every country, the conditions are different because the Yemenis and the Syrians and Libyans are willing to fight to the last man and the last bullet. As the son of Qaddafi said, we will fight. It will be a river of blood. And because also the structure of societies themselves, that is, you have very tribal societies, uh, you don't have really even the armies uh, splintered on day one in Libya and even in Yemen itself. So you have fractured societies. And you don't have, even in Egypt, you have the army that basically uh, decided that to take sides. And the army made all the difference in the world in Tunisia and Egypt. While armies in, in Syria and Yemen and Libya uh, have splintered between the existing regimes and between the uh, democ democratic forces. So it is not a perfect storm. And it is a revolution in the making. And it will take probably not only months, but probably years for some of the existing regimes to uh, collapse. But the reality is, the big point I want you to keep in mind, this is a revolution in the making. A psychological rupture has taken place. People feel empowered. It might take Assad two or three years. Of course, the cost will be tremendous. But the reality is, Syria will never be the same. Libya will never be the same. Yemen will never be the same. Bahrain, I can go on and on and on. And remember, revolutions, the Middle East is no different. Revolutions are bloody, are costly, prolonged. Um, and in fact, we are all pleasantly surprised how relatively peaceful the revolutions have been. I mean, think of the great revolutions. The great revolutions are, are very uh, costly. Where, do, uh, where does the Middle East go from here? It's a very, very difficult question. And I, I do hope, I, I, I have tried to really uh, shed some lights really uh, uh, on how the Middle East might proceed, the situation, political situation proceed. If there is one word I would say in the next two or five years, I would say turmoil. That is, uh, turmoil will be the dominant characteristic of Middle Eastern politics. Economic turmoil, political turmoil, social turmoil, and institutional turmoil. And that's why the risks are tremendous. And that's why the Middle East needs a great deal of help. That's why the international community and the Western powers can do a great deal of help by helping Middle Eastern societies and states to transcend, to weather the powerful storm that has been unleashed in the region. Unfortunately, while the rhetoric is great, if you listen to President Obama, I'm in the sense of uh, the, there are no concrete initiatives that take into account the great needs and the risks that exist. We know what the United States did after the, the end of World War II vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe. And in fact, the United States played a major fundamental role in the transformation that took place in Europe between the end of World War II and the 1950s. I don't see it so far in the case of the Middle East. There is no appreciation, really, of the gravity of the crisis and that transformation in the Middle East will take years and will take great resources. That is, um, President Obama promised Egypt about $2 billion in debts uh, uh, and other resources. I mean, Egypt needs a package of probably $50 billion uh, over, the, over the next five or 10 years. And I'm not saying that the United States and Europe give Egypt uh, $50 billion. I'm talking about Western leadership. The money is there. There are hundreds of billions of dollars in the Middle East. The Middle East is one of the wealthiest in terms of resources. I'm talking about the oil producing. I'm talking about Western leadership, constructing, conceptualizing a vision 
multiple mini Marshall Plans in order to help Middle Eastern societies transform themselves. I don't see it. Unfortunately, there's a huge divide between the rhetoric and the reality. Okay, thank you. Let's go one floor up. Could we have right behind you the two questions? Hello. <clears throat> we have not seen the situation uh, any different uh, in Lebanon than it has been for the past 20 years. Uh, the leaders are still there, and there's, there's still political divide is still uh, going on. So uh, where do you see it going, and why didn't it happen yet? Thank you. Okay. Could you pass it on to your colleague? Yeah. Thank you. Um, as we can see, uh, Western countries are not so close to uh, Middle East. Maybe the sea could symbolize the the uh, the distance between uh, Middle East countries and Western countries. Could um, the Israeli area could be the new pivot area or not? About if we have pivot area, Israeli area, we, we have the power on Middle East country. Could, could it be? You're talking about the peace process or you're talking about Israel's role in the region or? Uh, both. Both. Okay. Why not? Okay. All right. Could we take one more question? Um, if you could pass it further along. Yes, please. The lady there. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for your presentation. My question concerns NGOs in the Arab world in general, but particularly um, Egyptian advocacy NGOs. Um, do you see these NGOs as gaining the momentum to influence institution building and the democratic development, or do you see them as still being too disorganized and too fragmented to, um, to have an impact? Okay, we'll squeeze in the fourth question. Right at the back there, please, thank you. Thank you very much for your lecture. Uh, you talked about the, this mini Marshall Plan, but it, there seems to me that there is neither the political will nor the economic capacity within the European Union and the United States to, to even help themselves. Do you think there is a role for China here that have massive foreign exchange uh, reserves and other, other economic capacities to help and certainly have an interest in the oil that exists in the Middle East? Uh, what, what is their role and, and what can that imply for, for the politics in the Middle East over the next couple of years? Great. Thank you very much. Lebanon, Israel, India, China. We'll start with China, the last question. And, uh, thank you for the question about China. Uh, China is really now emerging as one of the most important economic players in the Middle East. In fact, China and India are the two largest, uh, the second buyers of Middle East oil now. And I would argue the share of the Middle Eastern oil and gas will become uh, greater by the year. That is giant, truly they're, they're giant players uh, in Middle Eastern economies. Unfortunately, uh, neither China nor India really um, has conceptualized an international role for itself in that part of the world. That is, China is focused on its own affairs. Uh, India is focused on, remember, uh, modernization, development. Uh, they're in the thick of it. Um, so even though China buys a great deal of Middle Eastern oil and India buys a great deal of Middle Eastern gas and oil, they don't really play, they don't take an active role in international affairs in the same way that Western societies do. They don't really play a major role in the security umbrella that exists in the region. They are not really as proactive. In fact, China is terrified of the storm that has been brewing 
uh, in the Middle East for the last year or so. And China is trying to use some of its own resources to prevent any kind of a turmoil in its own society. So you have a society that's really basically focused on its own internal affairs, uh, a society that has not really conceptualized, that does not really have the political will uh, to play uh, a major role in the reconstruction of Middle Eastern societies. In many ways, China is still um, involved in its own self-reconstruction. So it tells you a great deal about the divide between China's role uh, internally and China's also mandate internationally. I don't, see, I don't see China in the next 10 or 20 years really taking on any kind of an international mandate other than the Middle East. We see some major Chinese actions in Africa and other countries, but not on the scale that really uh, the scale of the United States or uh, Europe itself. And you're absolutely correct. Uh, there, is lack, there is a lack of political will um, uh, and vision on the part of Europe and the United States when it comes to the great events, the great developments that have taken place in the region. I, please don't misunderstand me. The rhetoric is magnificent, but the, 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 there are no concrete initiatives. I, I think there is a major divide, and this is for a variety of reasons. Uh, for a variety of reasons, I mean, remember, the United States is overextended military now um, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Somalia. The, the American economy is under tremendous uh, pressure uh, President Mubarak is focused mainly on Asia, in particular on China, the major rival. Uh, in fact, President Obama's main strategy was to distance himself and extract the United States from Middle Eastern sands, what the Arab revolutions really have done, to force Obama against his will to become much more involved. And that's why it, it's basically, it, it's really not a, 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 you might say, a visionary, a, a proactive, uh, concrete vision for that. I think it's work in progress. We have to wait and see whether American foreign policy will become transformational vis-a-vis -vis that part of the world. I want to come back to the question about and relate your question to that uh, uh, the West is not really close to the Middle East. Well, again, I don't need to tell you the Middle East has been one of the pivotal theaters in Western foreign policies and economies for the last 50 years. If you accept my premise that uh, the world economy runs on inexpensive and cheap oil. That is basically the biggest, I mean, flow of cash now is in that part of the world. It's not just about oil and gas, it's about investment. It's about purchasing uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of arms. Um, just as we talk, you and I now, as we're talking to you, Saudi Arabia is negotiating almost $100 billion in arms from the United States, the largest military sale in America's history. This is, this is not change, this is big money. Saudi Arabia produces between 8 and 11 million barrels of oil a day. Uh, this is when, when Iraq, I mean, descends into chaos and Libya, Saudi Arabia comes, it tells you how close. And that's why, even though the president says he believes in transformation in Egypt and Tunisia, in a, in a speech for almost 30 minutes, he did not mention the word Saudi Arabia not even once in his May 19th speech at the State Department that was basically celebrated as a transformational speech vis-a-vis -vis the Arab revolutions. Saudi Arabia was not even mentioned, not even once in a speech, in, in President Obama's speech. And this tells you a great deal about the significance of Saudi Arabia uh, for the American economy, and that's why that is, uh, the existing order is very critical because the existing order maintains the flow of inexpensive oil. I mean, you might think that $100 per, bar, per I mean, barrel of oil is big money, but actually it's, it's very inexpensive in terms of economic, if you, if you calculate the, the actual price uh, of the barrel of oil. 
So this is really serious stuff. And not only about, you're talking also about Iran that has emerged as a migraine for American security. The United States is very much involved in trying to counterbalance and deter Iranian power. So the United States is deeply involved on the ground, I mean, in, in, in every way, again, and the special American-Israeli relationship that plays a, also a critical part in how the United States views that part of the world. That, in fact, the Israeli prism and, um, uh, you know, influences how American policymakers uh, act vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the region. And that's why when I said to the last moment that the Americans hesitated to really support the democratic voices in Egypt because they were terrified that the alternative would basically uh, cause instability on the Arab-Israeli front because Mubarak was seen as the guardian of the Camp David peace treaty between Egypt and Israel that was signed at the end of the 1970s. So you have the Israeli prism and you have the oil prism that have been really critical, two critical uh, lenses through which America and the West view that part of the world. My alternative, what I've tried today, what I've tried to really project and say today is that I do hope that the Western powers view that part of the world not just through the prism of oil, not just through the prism of Israel, not just through the prism of the bloody dictators that have brought ruin to their own societies and brought terrorism to Western shores, but rather through the universal aspirations of the millions of people who have risen up in the last six months. That is an argument, I hope, that will resonate with Western policymakers so far. Unfortunately, I don't see it. I hope I am wrong. I hope that uh, the lessons are, are learned. Uh, question NGOs. Yes, thank you so much for the question because I, if, again, if uh, my reading is correct, if the Western powers lack the political will and the vision to really invest structurally, that is, I think our hope is really on non-governmental organizations. Our hope, really all of you, each, this is really how transformation will likely take place in the Middle East, not through, not based on governments. We know how societies are. And I think in, in many ways you might have asked me is that do Middle Eastern really, uh, I mean, do the democratic forces want the United States to really structurally invest in? In fact, they want the international community. Any kind of invest, investment, I would like any kind of investment to be through non-governmental organizations. Um, I mean, whether in terms of investment in universities, in infrastructure, in banking, in tourism, uh, in training. When I say institutionalization, when I say we need to help the Middle East institutionalize, uh, 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 for example, one of the arguments I, I, I made today, I said, if elections were to take place in September, the Muslim Brotherhood would basically gain a majority between 25% and 30%. Why? That because the Muslim Brotherhood is the dominant, most powerful organization in Middle Eastern societies. But because the millions of voiceless Arabs and Muslims who regained their voice in the last six, six months are not institutionalized. They're not organized. They don't have outlets like the Muslim Brotherhood that has b basically been in place for the last 80 years. So that's what uh, non-governmental organizations should do. That's what all of us universities can do, train young men and women in that part of the world to do what? Organize themselves, try to, how to can canvas, how to really go to the various towns and neighborhoods, try to, uh, uh, I mean, organize uh, 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 basically constituencies, try to uh, help uh, families in, in very uh, difficult conditions uh, acquire the skills and the means in order to really compete in free elections. 
This is really what uh, non-governmental institutions can do. And uh, even though the European Union and the United uh, Nations and other organizations have started the task, we're talking about really it's a huge complex task. I mean, you're talking about resources, commitment, and again, this is why Marshall plans, I mean, for institutionalization really, you're talking about a global effort on the part of the international community in order to help millions of young men and women organize themselves, acquire the skills, the education, in order to really compete effectively and, and transform their societies according to liberal universal values um, uh, as opposed to exclusive and uh, xenophobic uh, principles. Good. Um, oh dear. One more round? We have time for just one more round, and I, I think we could go for another hour and a half or so. Um, so I'm, I'm really sorry that I can't take every question. I think there's a majority of hands in the center up there. Could we please start uh, with the lady uh, on your right? Yes, that's right. I'm really sorry about this, but um, uh, we will have another chance. Let me say this perhaps now before we all disappear. There will be a chance after this event to come and mingle with us at the reception that we're hosting upstairs. Um, Daniel, on the fifth floor. On the fifth floor. So if those of you who are not busy rushing back to the library um, to prepare for tomorrow's session would like to <laughs> join us for, oh, for the pub, no, not our summer school students. If you would like to join us, the speaker and other students, up on the fifth floor of the old building, this is the building where we are, there will be a reception held and there's another chance to pose some questions and enjoy yourself. So please, let's start the last round, please. Over there. Thank you very much for your presentation. I have two questions. One is actually about NGOs, and uh, you mentioned that the revolution was uh, bottom-up. What was the role of Western NGOs and Western ideas in this revolution? Okay. And the second question is about Libya and the foreign intervention, and uh, what are the political sorry, interests? sorry, I didn't hear the second question. Uh, Libya and the foreign intervention, yes. and what are the political interests at stake? Yes. Okay. Then could you pass it on, please? Yep. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering um, what are other concrete reasons to persuade Western leaders to take risks in the people of the Arab world besides uh, hoping that they resonate with universal values? Thank okay. You. We can just take just one more at the back, please. Pass it back. Um, you've reiterated time after time that the West should help the Arab countries to develop um, politically, but given that the West was, uh, was one of the stakeholders in maintaining this oppressive and autocratic uh, leadership in uh, the Arab world, do you think it's a risk the Arab world should take in asking these countries to help them, or do you think they should go, go it slowly and go it alone and develop their kind of democracy? Okay, thank you. I'm afraid, I'm really sorry, I can't take any more questions. We're, we're going to be out of time in, in a minute. Would you like uh, to I think uh, I want to start again with the last question. I think you, you have already really punctured a hole in my argument. Uh, I mean, in a way, uh, many people in that part of the world say, why should we, in fact, believe what President Obama and Prime Minister Cameron say? Why should we take them seriously? They invested uh, for 50 years. They went to bed with the bloody dictators. How could we take what they say about... Uh, change very seriously. And in fact, Egypt now, the Egyptian, the new leadership of Egypt has already rejected a package of support from the uh, World Bank and IMF saying that the conditions are no longer acceptable. 
we we have to find our own ways to finance, to find our own uh, packages, and to uh, that because the the international consensus, the Washington consensus, has really brought Egypt nothing but ruin. And in fact, uh, ironically, when President Barack Obama went to Egypt after he was reelected, he was really like a rock star. Uh, millions of Egyptians and Arabs, I mean, they were just fascinated. They truly believed that he was a transformational president. I can tell you the reception that Obama received in Cairo. It was one of the most important really events probably uh, in relations between the United States and that part of the world in probably 30, 40 years. When President Barack Obama gave a speech on May the 19th, 2011, at the State Department, hardly anyone paid any attention. In fact, the major newspapers, the television stations, people did not even uh, take him seriously. Um, and I was e in Egypt, and I was shocked by the lack of any interest. And I, I said, he, he did not deliver. This is all kalam, um, talk. Uh, what's there? What did he do after he promises? Uh, he, he gave the speech in Cairo for the Egyptians, and he went and dined with President Mubarak. And he hugged President Mubarak, and he said, he is our ally, wise man. When we are in difficult conditions, we turn to our wise ally for advice and wisdom. President Obama, after his speech in Cairo, uh, looked at the camera, and, and, and uh, that's how we address Mubarak. Uh, so in many ways, I think uh, uh, not, not, your question really goes to the very heart of what I call the, what in, in, I, I'm, I have a book called Obama and the Middle East coming out in November. I call it Overcoming the Bitter Legacy that there is a bitter legacy between the United States on the West and the West on the one hand and that part of the world. And the question is, I fear that the rosy rhetoric, the uplifting rhetoric, and the lack of, of concrete measures, the, I mean, basically will likely uh, widen and deepen and reinforce the bitter legacy that exists uh, with that part of the world. Uh, this brings me to, um, the concrete arguments. Uh, I don't think Western leaders need any concrete arguments to realize that the bloody dictators that they supported for 50 years brought only ruin to their societies. I mean, look at the Middle East. It's a wasteland, economically, institutionally, and politically. In fact, Al-Qaeda is a mutation, is a product of that particular ruin that basically was, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, fed and nourished by these bloody dictators. Uh, one concrete argument is that, in fact, open, democratic, liberal, relatively open, pluralistic societies um, are societies that you can have, even when disagreement, you can have decent disagreement, you can have decent relations. In fact, these societies, uh, and I, uh, another argument is that this is a world, uh, I mean, waiting to be born. Um, this is one of the wealthiest areas in the world. If I were really a, a, a corporate man, I would say the greatest emerging markets, if societies, if they succeed in transformation, this will be one of the greatest emerging markets in world history. You have 320 million people who have internalized globalization, who believe in consumerism, who believe in the market, who believe in all the nonsense, all of us, and the decadent stuff most of you have bought into. So this is, this is, uh, this is really a, a huge, huge market economically and politically. You want to deactivate the cultural minefields that have been really a source of great tension, a poisonous legacy between the West and uh, the Muslim world. These are arguments, really commonsensical arguments. We don't 
need to promote them. And finally, Libya. I think the reason why, I mean, Libya is a very difficult, uh, I mean, case, if, again, if my reading is correct, if these are indigenous, bottom-up, from-below movements, focused. I think the worst thing that the West can do is to really to turn the debate, to shift the debate. This is not about the West and uh, the world of Islam. This is about really people rising up against their bloody tormentors. Um, and the Western power should never lose focus that the ownership of these revolutions are the people in the region. And that's why the intervention in Libya, many of us who really supported against the, the intervention because uh, there would have been a bloodbath. If, if the West did not intervene. I, I, I and many others, we supported it because we had no other choice, because Fagish uh, Gaddafi would have basically visited death and horror on Benghazi, Benghazi being the city of the opposition. But I fear now that basically the conflict in Libya, if Gaddafi stays with us for the next 90 days, if NATO fails, um, I fear that this is, becomes a classical civil war. You have the, the West versus the East, Eastern Libya, you have the West supporting the opposition um, and the African Union and China and, and uh, Russia indirectly saying that this is the West should not really intervene in Libya. That's why I, I'm saying, that's why even though it, these are revolutions and, and I, I would like the opposition, I would like the indigenous forces, I like the democratic forces to really basically uh, be the owners of their revolutions regardless of how long they take, regardless of how costly. At the end of the day, they have to own their own history. They have to determine their own affairs. All the West can do is to give them moral and political support as opposed to uh, sending boots on the ground. This would be really a, a, a worst-case scenario, and I hope Libya does not really prove me right on this particular point. Well, I'm, I'm really sorry that we can't take more questions. We're out of time. Um, you will hopefully join us all upstairs on the fifth floor. The best way is probably up the stairs rather than the lifts. It would take rather too long to squeeze you all into our two lifts. But please, before we go, will you join me in thanking Fawaz Sjerges for this most stimulating lecture?